Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So I uh, just got back from Ireland. It looked like you had a great time. I did. I feel like a very spoiled person for having gotten to go on that trip. Uh, And we went all over the place while we were there. But we ended up, through just kind of some logistics, spending a really lovely afternoon in Limerick while we were waiting on some friends to meet up with us to to move on to our next destination. And while we were at a pub there, we met this really lovely couple who were kind enough to chat with us for a bit. And during our conversation, our new friend Maria mentioned a historical event that took place in Limerick that was utterly fascinating to me. Uh, She started out by mentioning that in the 19-teens, the city had very briefly printed its own currency. And of course, I was immediately intrigued. Um, And she kind of gave me a quick rundown of it. But of course, like in a pub conversation of 15 minutes where there's much laughing and talking about other things, you don't get all of the stuff. So uh, I ended up looking into it and it unveiled itself to be a pretty fascinating moment. It was probably also on her mind because they just did like a hundred year thing in April, uh, like a festival around it. We'll talk about that at the end. And it is, it's really fascinating. I feel like it's one of those things that people in Limerick all knew about, but I had not heard of it. Me neither. Uh, So it seems like a good thing to kind of maybe share with the world outside of Ireland because it's a really fascinating piece of Irish history. And uh, so this episode isn't thanks to Maria. If by any chance she's listening, thank you for both a lovely conversation and a great idea. And also, I just want to thank all of Ireland for being incredibly friendly and welcoming. I had nothing but great interactions and experiences with literally every single person we met. So, uh... It was really quite delightful. So we are talking today about this event, which was called the Limerick Soviet. And it has a number of moving parts and some overlap in terms of different movements uh, that get a little tangled up in it, that even to this day get debated over over how much one or the other was an influence. Uh, But in April 2016 and in March 2018, as a Saturday classic, we had an episode on the Easter Rising of 1916. And that episode will give you a little bit of additional context for the events that we're going to talk about today because it it was a lot of the things that were happening leading up to what happened here. Uh, It's not a necessary listen before this one, but it just offers a little snapshot of what was playing out in Ireland politically right before the Limerick Soviet happened. So check it out if you want to get a little more of an in-depth approach to this one. To talk about the events that led to the Limerick Soviet, it'll help to first talk about Robert Byrne, who went by Bobby. Byrne was born on November 28, 1889 in Dublin. His father died when he was still a boy, and his mother moved herself and her son to Limerick, and that was where she was originally from. Bobby joined the civil service in 1907 at the age of 18 to work in the Limerick General Post Office. And after working at the Kinsale County Cork Post Office as a sorter and then in Bandon, also County Cork, he returned to the GPO in Limerick in October of 1911. When he was posted in Limerick, he started working as a telegraph operator, and it was in that position that he started sharing information he gathered on the job with intelligence officers of the Irish Volunteers. That was the precursor to the Irish Republican Army, who wanted Ireland to be free of British rule. The Volunteers formed as a paramilitary group that was intended to destabilize the power of the British government in Ireland. Obviously, that is a super quick version. Yeah, and if you are ever looking at documents that outline kind of what this happened, sometimes it's real fluid when they start calling um, the, the Volunteers, the Irish Republican Army, even though they hadn't 
uh, actually formed in that under that name yet. Um, so if you're looking and those don't quite match up, that's what's going on there. But over the next several years, Bobby became more and more involved with the Irish volunteer movement, so much so that the Royal Irish Constabulary, you'll often see that abbreviated as RIC, became interested in his activities. In 1917, he was placed on a list of post office employees that the police believed were disloyal to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Byrne was kept under surveillance by the authorities, and in the fall of 1918, post office management met with him to discuss a number of allegations of seditious activities that were on record in the years since 1916. He denied all these charges, but was fired from his position. Yeah, they suddenly unfurled a list of things, and they were not things he did at the post office in his job. They were things that uh, he had been spied on and recorded as doing in his, his normal life. And in addition to his association with the Republican militia, Byrne was also a very active member of the Trades Council. He was a trade unionist, and he was vocal in Ireland's labor movement. His work organizing his fellow post office workers in a union was undoubtedly also a factor in his dismissal. On January 13th, 1919, Byrne was at home in his mother's house when the home was raided by the RIC. Police searched the premises. They found a firearm and ammunition, and Bobby was arrested. He made no answer to these charges because he thought the authorities involved were part of an occupation of Ireland and that he wouldn't be given a fair judgment. Bobby Byrne was kept in custody without sentencing, and while in prison, he campaigned to be given political prisoner status. On February 4th, after several weeks in custody, Byrne was finally sentenced to 12 months hard labor. Byrne led a rebellion in the prison the day after his sentence was handed down. He and 15 other prisoners, all of whom they believed that they should be held as political prisoners rather than as criminal convicts, barricaded their cells and they smashed the furniture within and they sang Republican songs loudly enough to draw a crowd in the street outside. It took several hours for the police to settle things down, and as a result of the protests, the men involved were punished with strict measures. They were shackled to their beds, some had their boots taken away, and visitors were no longer allowed to bring them food or clothing. Some were put in solitary confinement, and they went on a hunger strike in protest. As news of what was going on in the prison circulated, it catalyzed a number of discussions among Limerick's leaders. The city council met and discussed the treatment of the prisoners. The incarcerated men had told visitors that they had no issue with the mayor or the prison guards, but that they wanted to be categorized as political prisoners. And that fact, plus pamphlets that were circulating about the men's poor treatment, including being force-fed, gained support for them. There was also a meeting of the Irish Post Office Clerks Association to discuss secret reporting on staff. Byrne had, as you recall, been fired based entirely on accusations that he had denied, with no formal process for him to defend himself. And a resolution was written up and sent to Lloyd George, UK's prime minister at the time, as well as leaders of the Postal Service, calling for Bobby Byrne to be reinstated in his position. They also called for uh, an end to this idea of secret reporting. Byrne eventually became so ill that he was moved to the Limerick Union Workhouse Hospital and kept under armed guard. This move was performed under the Criminal Administration Act of 1914, meaning that though he was no longer in a prison facility, he was still in legal custody. The hospital didn't want to take him, though. They were concerned that if he died in their facility, they would be held responsible instead of the police. Ultimately, they had no legal power to prevent this move. 
As the hospital administration was fretting over having Byrne in their care, plans were being made to break him out. At a club on Gerald Griffin Street, Petter Dunn, commandant of the IRA's Limerick Battalion, brought together battalion officers from the organization to put together a rescue for Byrne. And that was scheduled for April 6th. The guards stationed at the hospital would be tied up, they would grab Bobby Byrne, and then they would take him to a safe house. No battalion officers were to participate in this mission. Starting at about 2 p.m. on April 6th, the volunteers, led by Michael Stack, started arriving at the hospital in small groups. They pretended that they were visiting various patients. Several dozen assembled, and some were out on the hospital grounds and others on the ward where Byrne was being held. A funeral carriage was waiting for Byrne and his liberators at the hospital's morgue doors around the back. Yeah, that was to be their getaway car. And we're going to talk about how this rescue effort played out in just a moment. But first, we are going to pause for a little sponsor break. It is not entirely clear how Bobby Byrne was notified of what was happening. Different members of the volunteer team that went to rescue him gave different accounts. But the plan was that there would be a signal whistle blown after a number of the group had made their way to the areas near Burns' bed, again, all pretending that they were checking in on other patients. And once that whistle blew, the plan would jump into action. Stack and his men had planned and prepared, but even so, when he blew the whistle, the hospital just really erupted into a pandemonium. For one thing, there were bystanders who were actual visitors to the patients in the ward, and they all started running when they heard this whistle. For another thing, the guards on either side of Burns' bed were armed, and they had their weapons drawn. Stack later said that one of the constables, named Spillane, turned and shot Byrne as he lay in bed, and that Stack fired at Spillane in response. Stack also fatally shot another constable, Martin O'Brien, as the policeman drew his weapon while the volunteers were carrying Byrne out of the hospital. A prison warden named John Mahoney, who was also assigned to the hospital, told that story differently. He said that while the constables did have their guns drawn, neither of them fired. And in his version, the two policemen grappled with the crowd that rushed at them as Byrne got out of bed. Mahoney was trampled and he lost consciousness, so uh, his account kind of drops off there. He came to long enough to once again make a lunge and try to capture Byrne. He had not left the hospital yet, but he then received a blow to the head that left him dazed. And by the time he regained his senses from that, Byrne was gone. Byrne's supporters were able to get him out of the prison, but the funeral carriage was gone. Instead, they commandeered a small carriage being driven by a local named John Ryan, who took Byrne and his rescuers to his home in County Clare. Byrne died from the gunshot that night. The bullet that killed him may have actually been from one of his rescuers' guns. The story about that has shifted over the years, but at the time, it was believed that he was shot and killed by police, so the public was outraged. On April 9th, three days after Byrne's death, the protests in the city led to the declaration of martial law in Limerick. The city was barricaded with checkpoints that required a special permit from the military to pass through. And to get a permit, each person had to report to a military office at 78 O'Connell Street and have their address, job, and personal appearance recorded. The whole city was cordoned, excluding the area north of the River Shannon, and that created a unique problem. 
Many of the city's laborers worked in the Thomengate area north of the river, and two major factories, which were Walker's Distillery and the Cleves Dairy, were also north of this barricade. That meant more than 5,000 workers from both sides of the river were going to have to get military-issued passes just to get to their jobs. And in some cases, they were going to have to pass through checkpoints like four times a day. The day after the declaration of martial law on April 10th, Robert Byrne was laid to rest, and his funeral took place at St. John's Cathedral, and he was buried in Mount St. Lawrence Cemetery. The entire city shut down, and thousands of people came out into the streets to pay their respects to Byrne. The Limerick Trades and Labor Council, led by President John Cronin and with delegates from the city's trade unions, met on Sunday, April 13th, to discuss the problem. This meeting went on for 12 hours, and the end result was a plan for a strike— the strike committee issued the following statement, quote, The workers of Limerick assembled in council hereby declare cessation of all work from 5 a.m. on Monday, April 14, 1919, as a protest against the decision of the British government in compelling them to procure permits in order to earn their daily bread by order of the strike committee Mechanics Institute. An estimated 15,000 workers participated in this strike. You'll sometimes also see that number listed as 14,000 or somewhere in between. And at this point, the population of Limerick was around 38,000, so that was a very significant number. Essentially, the entire city went on strike. Even the pubs closed down. And initially, some work, for example, in dairy and bacon factories, was allowed to continue, but only for the first day of the strike. And that was so that the existing supplies there didn't simply spoil and go to waste, or I would presume, stink up the entire town. The Trade Council's strike plan was detailed and carefully thought out. Committees were established to ensure that Limerick had some kind of infrastructure during the strike and isolation within the barricades. There were people managing food distribution and other daily needs. Food depots were set up with fixed-price groceries. Profiteering during the strike was strictly outlawed. And to ensure that no one tried to jack up prices to take advantage of this situation, agreed-upon prices for all goods were posted on flyers around the town so that the population was kept informed about what they should be paying for any given uh, staple item of groceries. And additionally, the council, which convened every morning, made allowances for people to work in bakeries and for stores to open for limited afternoon hours to sell necessities, all in the interest of keeping the city going without regular supplies coming in. They also made deals with local farmers to provide produce directly to the city and circumvent the usual distribution channels. Volunteers did smuggle in some supplies from the countryside, and in some cases, they faked funeral processions with food and other supplies being carried in the coffins instead of bodies. But these weren't regular or dependable, and the Trades Council was not involved in them. A police force was set up by uh, the Trades Council, as well as a finances subcommittee, and it was decided in the second week of the strike that Limerick would print its own money. So under the leadership of Trade Council Treasurer James Casey, currency was printed in one, five, and ten shilling denominations, and Casey signed each note. The Trade Union Congress had sent their treasurer, who said that the TUC backed the Limerick currency, so basically they were going to make good on payments on all of these notes. In this way, strikers could be issued currency, and shopkeepers of businesses approved to open agreed to accept that currency. Businesses that were permitted to open did so with signage that stated that they were operating under the approval of the strike committee. 
Vehicles were not allowed to drive on the roads without a permit from the council. There was also a regular daily paper that was run to keep everyone informed about the strike and the labor council's doings, which was called the Workers' Bulletin. And coming up, we're going to talk about how this strike became international news. But before that, we're going to take a little break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History Class going. The Limerick Soviet, as it came to be known in the press, gained international following when press arrived in the area to cover a transatlantic flight because Limerick had been planned as a fueling stop for pilot J.C.P. Wood as he made this journey. But Wood had ditched his plane in the ocean off the Welsh coast, so the journalists that had assembled in Limerick essentially had no story. So they turned instead to covering the strike. And it was something of a feel-good story. This strike was nonviolent, and it had been carefully thought out, so it was pretty easy to write about it in a supportive light. One journalist from the United States named Ruth Russell had been touring Ireland and writing about its political situation when she arrived in Limerick. In 1920, she published a book about Ireland, and she recounted meeting with the head of the strike committee, John Cronin, to get his explanation of what the strike was about. Per his talk with Russell, Cronin either felt that they were on track for a long-term governance by the workers, or he was making it sound that way for the international press. So here's a portion of Ruth Russell's account, starting with a quote from Cronin. He says, quote, Why did we form it? Why do we pit people's rule against military rule? Of course, as workers, we are against all military. But our particular grievance against the British military is this— When the town was unjustly proclaimed, the cordon was drawn to leave out a factory part of town that lies beyond the bridges. We had to ask the soldiers for permits to earn our daily bread. You have seen how we have thrown the crank into production, but some activities are permitted to continue. Bakers are working under our orders. The kept press is killed, but we have substituted our own paper. He held up a small sheet which said in large letters, the workers' bulletin issued by the Limerick Proletariat. Quote, we have distributed food and slashed prices. The farmers send us their produce. The food committee has been able to cut down prices. Eggs, for instance, are down from a dollar to 66 cents a dozen, and milk from 14 to 6 cents a quart. In a few days, we will engrave our own money. Beside, there will be an influx of money from England. About half the workers are affiliated to English unions and entitled to strike pay. We have, by the way, felt the sympathy of the union men in the army sent to guard us. A whole Scotch regiment had to be sent home because it was letting workers go back and forth without passes. And we have told no one else... The National Executive Council of the Irish Labor Party and Trade Union Congress will change its headquarters from Dublin to Limerick. Then, if military rule isn't abrogated, a general strike of the entire country will be called. Of course, the Workers' Bulletin also wrote about the strike in a positive light and commented, as issues like food depots and currency were worked out, that the strike would, quote, show the world what Irish workers are capable of doing when left on their own resources. We should mention also that the Soviet, as it was being called, was not exactly tied to the Russian Revolution, though that name was borrowed, again, by the press from the events that had been playing out in Russia as Tsarist rule was overthrown. The idea of a Soviet as a council formed from workers was being applied to the Limerick strike and its governance by the Trade Council, and as labor strikes had also been a significant part of the Russian Revolution, the name really stuck after journalists used it. 
Thomas Johnson, who was the leader of Ireland's Labor Party, rolled into town hoping to represent the trade organizations and negotiate a solution. And he had to get a permit from the military authorities to pass through the barricade to do so. When the local trade council told him they wanted a national strike for workers' rights, Johnson explained that to formally mount such a strike, a national convention would have to be held to decide. And while there was support in other municipalities, that support was not universal. Though most unions agreed that the situation in Limerick was untenable and unfair to laborers and that they had every reason to strike and even, you know, every valid reason to call for a national effort, there was also some very real concern that the strike was harming the laborers and barely even inconvenienced the British military that had put the barricade in place. Additionally, there was a real concern that a national strike would lead to violence. To make things even trickier, Sinn Féin didn't offer support for the strike and for the Soviet. The Labor Party was acting on its own, and that wasn't something they were interested in. Up to that point, the leaders of the Labor Party and trade unions were working to develop relationships with the leadership of Sinn Féin, and they were hoping for the party's support in the strike. But Sinn Féin wanted to lead campaigns and for labor to mobilize to support them. They were much less enthusiastic at the thought of workers actually having control. And since there was also a lot of overlap of the nationalist volunteers, which, as I said, would eventually evolve into the Irish Republican Army, and labor rights advocates of the time, there was also some murkiness about motivations and leadership related to the strike. The history of Sinn Féin and the IRA as its paramilitary arm is long and complicated and controversial with internal disagreements and splits. It's like once you start looking at it, if you diagram it out, I mean, it becomes a tree pretty quickly because different factions will separate off because of disagreements. And then within that faction, they will separate into two or more branches and it continues like that. But at the time of the Limerick Soviet, the volunteers and Sinn Féin were closely aligned. And as a reminder, Bobby Byrne, whose death had been the catalyst for this whole event, had been a member of Sinn Féin and a member of the Limerick Trades and Labor Council. And it had been a group of volunteers, you'll often see it said as an IRA mission, that planned his escape from the hospital. The strike committee itself sought to distance their efforts from Sinn Féin and use the workers' bulletin to do so. On Monday, April 21st, the bulletin ran a blurb that said, quote, the English press is doing its level best to dub the strike a Sinn Féin one in hopes that the English working class will be fooled. This strike is a workers' strike and is no more Sinn Féin than any other strike against tyranny and inhuman oppression. And Tommy, the British soldier, is not our real enemy. And we wish him to understand he is merely a tool of his imperialistic, capitalistic government. In the midst of discussions with the National Executive of the Irish Labor Party Trade Union Congress, an entirely new idea was floated as an alternative to pursuing a national strike, which the Labor Party really, really did not want. And it was really just increasingly apparent that they were not going to let that happen. And this plan was to completely evacuate the city of Limerick. The idea was that in leaving the city an empty shell, it would make a strong statement visually, and it would also send a message that the people of Limerick would rather leave their homes than live under British martial law. And though this was a bold idea, it was also fairly nutty. It did not fly for a number of reasons, including the immense logistical load of finding places to relocate an entire city's population, even temporarily. Meanwhile, British trade unions were working actively against the strike. Some of these unions managed workers in Ireland and were able to exert their influence to urge anyone in their unions to forgo participation. 
There was support for Limerick's labor strike throughout Ireland, and many people donated money to the cause, but there was just no way for these funds to reach the striking workers. Additionally, it was fairly apparent that even though the strike committee was doing pretty well in running things, that the situation could not last forever. Limerick just didn't have the infrastructure to continue to operate independently for very long. (laughs) Yeah, independently behind barricades. It was just not going to work. Uh, With no national strike forthcoming and resources being stretched pretty thin, a meeting took place with multiple local leaders as well as the strike committee. In attendance were Stephen O'Mara, who was Limerick's mayor, Dennis Hallinan, Catholic bishop of Limerick, and General Griffin, commanding officer of the Limerick garrison. And after these negotiations, an agreement was reached that if the strike committee called an end to the strike, and then if there was no trouble in the days that followed, you'll often see it listed as a week, the barricades and the checkpoint setup would also end. So on April 24th, the strike ended, and a week later, Limerick residents needed no permits to move in and out of their city. While the strike ended without a loss of life and the workers and strike committee could consider it a win, There are also plenty of people who see it as a loss. In the last hundred years, there's been a great deal of theorizing about what might have been if the committee had continued to develop a worker-led government instead of compromising with the British authorities. On May 29th of 2009, the Robert Byrne Memorial Park was opened. In 2015, a documentary about the Limerick Soviet was made. And just a couple of months ago, as I referenced at the top of this episode, the city of Limerick marked the 100-year anniversary of the strike with a huge series of events titled Limerick Soviet 100, a festival of art and activism. Do you have listener mail to take us out? I do. And just by magical coincidence, it is also about Ireland. Hooray! (laughs) Uh, It is from our listener, Lori, who um, sent us a lovely care package because she has also been traveling. Uh, She said, greetings, Tracy and Holly. I've been meaning to write you for over a year now, but life seemed to get in the way too often. I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, She says, I have been a listener for many years and finally have a connection to a podcast to write you. I visited Ireland in March of 2018 with my best friend of 30 years to celebrate turning 40 that year. Imagine my delight when your classic episode before I left was on the Easter Rising in Dublin. While visiting Dublin, I was able to visit many of the sites associated with the War for Irish Independence, St. Stephen's Green, the General Post Office, and Killingham Jail. While at the Little Museum of Dublin, they had a copy of the 1916 Proclamation for Independence up on the wall, and I picked up a postcard copy of it for you. Uh, And then she talks about kind of the history of Dublin that they learned about while they were here, and she sent us um, some great stuff. Uh, Some of what she talks about was Vikings being in uh, Dublin before... Uh, most of the history we have talked about related to Irish history. Uh, As she said, there's a postcard with this uh, fabulous proclamation on it, as well as a beautiful postcard, uh, a couple of other beautiful postcards that she sent. So uh, it was super duper fun to get this. It was actually sitting on my desk when I got back from Ireland and it felt like magically Ireland had arranged it. (laughs) But that was not the case. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Lori, um, for all of these delightful treats and for kind of making it feel like my trip lasted longer than it actually did. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And mistinhistory.com is also our website. You can subscribe to the podcast. We sure would like it if you did. And you can do that at the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts. 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 